Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Economic inequality is a problem, but big tax cuts and billionaire politicians keep coming. History has some harsh lessons about effective ways to level the playing field. The Black Death works. So does massive warfare or state failure. We'll talk with White Walter Scheidel about his thought-provoking book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. One of the most talked about books in economic circles last year was Walter Scheidel's Great Leveler. The Great Leveler says the the only effective ways to stop inequality in recorded history are all violent and highly undesirable. Massive warfare, transformative revolution, catastrophic plagues, and state collapse are what Scheidel calls the four horsemen of leveling. Martin Wolf at the Financial Times says we must prove Scheidel wrong. If we fail to do so, soaring inequality might slay democracy, too, in the end. We're going to get to that issue and many others this hour. And thanks for joining us, Walter Scheidel. Well, thanks for having me. Also with us is Jeffrey Winters, professor of political science at Northwestern. We've been talking with Jeffrey frequently about inequality. He directs Northwestern's Equality Development and Globalization Studies program. Nice to see you, Jeffrey. Uh, Good to see you too, Jerome. Uh, Walter, you come at this from a different place than Jeffrey's a political science professor. Lots of economists are in this, but you are a professor in the humanities and a professor of classics and history at Stanford. How did you get into the inequality business? Well, inequality has a very long history. And of course, economists understandably tend to focus on um, uh, current um, events or the more recent past. And so I thought the time had come to really take a few steps back and try to track the evolution of economic inequality in the very long term. And I think in this case, it was an advantage that I specialize in early and pre-modern history because that made it easier for me to go really far back in time, not just a few hundred, but several thousands uh, of years and to evaluate the very disparate evidence that exists that can throw light on this particular issue. But I was certainly inspired by the current debate, and especially by Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. He goes back in time 200 years, and some of the patterns, some of the dynamics that he discovered, I felt could also be documented in the much more distant past. And that's what ultimately inspired me to undertake this very broad survey. And Jeffrey, you've dabbled in this, too. In your book in 2011, Oligarchy, you talked about ancient examples and compared them to the present. Yeah. uh, And a number of us uh, scholars are are really – we've been provoked in in recent years by the extreme inequality that we're seeing um, uh, almost unprecedented in its its extremeness today in the modern world – and it's provoked us to go back and ask uh, how prevalent is this kind of pattern and uh, and especially to ask the contemporary question, well, authoritarianism and exclusionary regimes are sort of the norm throughout the vast majority of human history. And if we go back just 
250, 230 years, we, are, we enter the era of modern democracy. And one of the questions we ask is, um, does democracy matter? Freedom ought to matter. Universal suffrage, participation, all that should have an impact um, on questions of equality, um, especially in its extreme forms. And so um, – I guess putting it in historical perspective, one of the things that's prominent not only in the in the work of Walter Scheidel but in, in a lot of others is that democracy doesn't seem to have quite the payoff in terms of combating inequality that we would hope or expect that it would. And that presents the question, why? Uh, you, Walter, you zero in on violence here and all these major things that are, are, are great levelers as you call them. Uh, they're all violent and it doesn't matter if you're a democracy or if you're an authoritarian regime or an authoritarian situation. You you need these things to make dramatic changes is, is essentially the idea. Uh, that's essentially the idea. And what's really striking is this seems to be true regardless of whether we look at the 20th century or the 19th century or 500 or 1,000 or several thousand years ago. So even though dramatic changes have occurred in human social evolution, in economic development, in political development, this particular logic of equalization seems to have remained largely unchanged over time and was not really changed even by industrialization or the rise of modern democracy. And I think is a really very striking and worrying uh, finding as well. One of the things I appreciated as I read the book was the connection, and everybody knows that there is a connection between uh, the political and uh, the, the, the leadership and the economic elite. But uh, in the book, it's just time and time again, the, the politicians and the economic elite are uh, one, there are some dramatic examples from ancient China that are eerily similar to today. Uh, that's certainly true. And I found that one of the most um, effective ways of, of reducing the gap between the haves and the have-nots in history was the collapse of the state. And the reason for this is that the state in history, historically, for 98% of recorded history, wasn't just a way of organizing people's affairs. It was also an engine for disequalization, a vehicle uh, for making society and the economy less rather than more equal. And that's because the rich were either the same people as the powerful, or at the very least, they were very, very closely allied. And so the bigger, the more powerful, the more imperial pre-modern states became, the more they shored up, protected, reinforced economic inequality. And then, of course, the inverse is also true. When these state structures, these hierarchies unravel, they take the rich and powerful down with them. If states collapse, everybody suffers, but the rich simply have more to lose. They can lose 99% of their assets and still be around. And that's what we observe time and again, going back the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, even before that in, in early Egypt, Bronze Age Greece, uh, yeah, the fall of various Chinese uh, dynasties, which I talk about in my book, uh, the decline of the lowland Maya in Yucatan, the collapse of the Angkorian civilization in Cambodia. There are many, many examples from around the world that shows that the chaos of state collapse reduces inequality quite considerably. And it seems to be true even today. If you look at Somalia, Somalia has a very bad press, understandably, for being anarchic and violent, and it's all true, but it appears that state collapse did in fact reduce inequality at the very top by taking down a highly kleptocratic regime. So we shouldn't want an end to inequality, essentially, <laughs> because otherwise we get Somalia. 
Well, there have to be better ways of doing this. It's just if you look at history uh, in, in, in the very long run uh, across different periods and stages of development, that's what the record implies, that every single time we observe a massive uh, attenuation of inequality, it is invariably linked to some cataclysmic violent event. doesn't mean it will still have to be that way in the 21st century, but that's what the record shows, and it certainly doesn't inspire a great deal of optimism uh, in that regard. Yeah, and if we if we bring this again up to the up to the modern period and especially the modern state, um, it's clear that all democracies arise out of very unequal societies, right? At the dawn of dem- of the democratization era, um, we we all lived in very very stratified societies, and. From a political science point of view, um, one of the interesting questions is, as you basically formally disperse power through democratic practices, one person, one vote is a very radical idea. Um, Contestation of elites for a vote, um, having somehow to be responsive to people in order to attract their vote. um, As you enter into that kind of system of government, What's very interesting is that we sort of theoretically and almost logically expect that as we disperse power, we ought to set up a situation in which the many are able to produce policies that are beneficial to them rather than for the few. But it turns out that the the starting point of tremendous inequality um, actually shapes the way democracy itself is um, uh, evolves and unfolds. So the terms on which we get modern democracy are actually stratified terms. That is built into the very structure of the practices, the laws, the constitutions, and the protections that are built into democracy are protections for stratification itself. Um, and so to, to, to sum it up very, uh, very succinctly, um, we are allowed to choose in a democratic society but the, the, the stratified power structure really determines what our choices are. And to bring it down to Illinois, um, we, we have basically two billionaires um, running against each other. Um, we did have an effort by others of very uh, modest means um, to try to break in at the primary level. But overall, the capacity of these individuals to pour tens of millions of dollars into a campaign that shaped people's uh, uh, views ultimately shaped it so that you know we're we're looking at a billionaire running against a billionaire we'll still get to vote on voting day um, but we uh, you know, things are structured in a way that that limit the kinds of policies that are going to be available to us. Yeah, okay, I got to bring up the Cook County Assessors race that we just saw too. We mm-hmm. got a, a guy who was ousted in the Cook County Assessors race by a guy who was mad about uh, unequal unequal um, taxation, but he had to spend one point six million dollars of his own money to do it. It's yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, Walter, do you have some thoughts about what what you see on the here on the horizon with the billionaires and democracy in this country? Well, I think there is a reason uh, what you just talked about why 
the increase in inequality in the United States in the last several decades was more extreme, more intense than in other developed countries. You see an underlying trend that's driven by factors that are not limited to any one country, globalization, automation, very broad uh, economic and technological trends. But on top of that superimposed, there are significant differences in political systems, institutions, and so on. And here, um, that the way the political system is set up of the, uh, the, the two-party system and the way our political campaigns are currently financed, that's certainly an additional driving force uh, that favors even higher inequality, and that accounts for some of the difference we observe. You know, I was struck in your book by Japan after World War II, and one of the, it, we, the United States, of course, occupied Japan and made the rules for Japan after World War II and decided to de-stratify the society at that time. And they instituted things like a 70% tax on inheritance, and and they really ended up setting up Japan for some enduring equality. And uh, it took the violence of World War II and an occupation to do it but uh, and some intent. But that was a wild uh, thing to think about because now U.S. leaders would never think of a 70% tax of people here on, on, on inheritance or something. That would be crazy. Well, in fact, that was imported from the U.S. because that's what the administration did during World War II when the top uh, rate on income was 94% and the top estate tax rate, I believe, was 70% uh, on the largest fortunes in the early 40s. And that was then imposed on occupied Japan. So that's a very good example of how democracy can deliver the goods. But in order to, for democracy to kick in as an equalizer, it has to be pushed into action. And it's pushed into action, as far as we can tell, only by really massive violent dislocations. It was the Great Depression initially and then World War II that got leaders to resort to measures that were truly radical, measures that would not have been feasible, politically feasible, possible to implement in peacetime. Yeah, and and I would just add on to that that if we think about um, most of our uh, politics as being broadly uh, divided between politics of the ordinary – and politics of crisis, right? So we, we sort of trudge along in a very ordinary way most of the time. And then we have these ruptures. We have these these deep uh, crises. And it turns out that actually the most powerful actors in society, elites, uh, oligarchs, and so on, are at their most effective during the politics of the ordinary. Um, and often they're operating behind the scenes through lobbying, through structuring laws, and, and such. The crises moments um, are, are periods where they're knocked off balance. Uh, they're, they're normal ways of controlling um, what happens socially, politically, and economically are disrupted. Um, and those are moments when there's a window of opportunity not only um, to take uh, – fairly radical action, but also to restructure our institutions. Um, So if you look at the excellent case of the 20th century United States, we had these massive crises and what got put in place was a welfare state um, and uh, redistribution essentially, which was impossible prior to the disruption, politically impossible. Um, And then if you look at the rest of the politics of the 20th and 21st century, it's basically been an effort by um, the wealthy to roll back those changes, to undo those institutions. But Walter, your book is full of examples of uh, kind of temporary measures to address inequality that don't last. They, they just don't stick very long. 
Well, in the end, all equalizing events were temporary. So even if they had an effect for quite a long time, uh, they would eventually dissipate. They would fade out. To give you one example um, about uh, how elite power was uh, greatly reduced by a sudden crisis, a sudden shock. If you go back to the late Middle Ages, say um, the 14th century, when the, the Black Death entered Europe, bubonic plague killed about a third of all people in Europe, as far as we can tell, in the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, without damage the physical infrastructure. Well, what happened in this case was there weren't as many laborers as before, which increased the price of labor, drove up wages, and there was the same amount of land as before, but less demand, so it reduced uh, the value of land, the value of capital. And as a result, the poor were suddenly less poor because they could sell their labor uh, for higher wages, and the rich were less rich because the capital they owned uh, had lost uh, value. And that lasted only as long as the plague was around, Eventually, after several generations, the plague went away around 1500. Population started growing again. And by the time it had grown back to the level where it had been prior to the plague, well, everything had gone back pretty much uh, back to normal. Real wages were down. Inequality was up. And that trend continued all the way to the beginning of the 20th century because there was no comparably severe crisis in European history between the Black Death and late Middle Ages and 1914 when World War I. Uh, started. We're talking with Walter Scheidel about his book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Also with us, Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern University. We're going to be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking today with Walter Scheidel. He's the author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Also with us is Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern University. And we'd like to take a few phone calls today and see if you have some thoughts on inequality and uh, what uh, has been happening. And the number is 312-923-9239. 312-923-9239. Nine two three nine. Um, you know, I wanted to uh, jump around and, and talk about a, a few of the um, things in the book. And, and you mentioned how little effect we were talking before the break about how little the effect of um, reducing uh, how, how policy doesn't really work very well. And towards the end of the book, you discuss how Anthony Adkins has this blueprint for reducing income inequality in Britain. And you say that there's um, that there's four things that he wants to do: more progressive taxation, earned income discount at low levels, tax benefits for each child, minimum income for all citizens, and it wouldn't do much to narrow the inequality gap um, between Britain and Sweden. It would only cut the inequality gap by half. Um, what is uh, what gives with policy? How, is the income inequality so great that these things we do just don't add up? 
Well, on the one hand, as I already mentioned, we are currently under the influence of factors that are very broad at a global uh, in nature, the opening up of, of global exchange, trade, capital flows, and so on in the last uh, few centuries that have greatly reduced inequality between countries, but uh, increased it in some of the more developed countries, and even in developing countries, if you think of China um, or India. So there's a trade-off, it seems, between continuing economic growth and uh, a rise in inequality. There is ongoing automation. All these things are happening regardless of what we do. It would take a very, very dramatic uh, disruption to bring these processes uh, to an end or interfere with them in any meaningful way. And that's why traditional policy measures like the ones that Anthony Atkinson uh, proposed and others have proposed uh, for the U.S., uh, for instance, they even if they were fully implemented, which would also already be very, very difficult to do politically, they would only have a relatively limited effect. What I like about the Atkinson proposal is that it's very honest because it tries to price um, uh, these uh, proposals uh, to note uh, trade-offs. If you do a certain thing, if you increase redistribution, if you uh, regulate the market more, this may have a negative effect on economic growth. So there's always a trade-off inherent in these calculations. And that makes it so much more difficult uh, to implement more radical measures that would make a real difference, at least in the stable, peaceful environment that we luckily currently inhabit in most of the world. Yeah, I, and I'd like to go back to something actually, Walter, that you said earlier about equalizing events being very temporary. Um, you know, I, as I was also reading your book, I was wondering why? Why are equalizing events so temporary? Or to turn it around another way, is tremendous inequality sort of a normal human state? Are the periods of of inequality aberrations uh, and 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 to and to sort of take that question a bit further, you have these four very violent, extremely um, horrifying kinds of ways of leveling. And at one point earlier, you said, "Well, we need to find another way um, to level." Um, and so I'm wondering first, you know, kind of why are these equalizing events temporary? How do we make them more permanent? Um, and then what might another leveling? Uh, imp- uh, mechanism or means be? I think it goes back to what you talked about earlier, that if behind the scenes, either overtly or behind the scenes, elites are always disproportionately powerful, it's not terribly surprising that rising or high inequality has been a default condition of human civilization going back thousands of years. And as you said, this hasn't really changed all that much, even uh, in the very recent past. So I think that's a, a very big part of the explanation. Another is that economic development, technological change, which are ongoing, which have in some ways even accelerated, they by themselves tend to drive inequality because there are always some people who are better positioned to take advantage of them than others based on their socioeconomic status, their education, any number of things. And so inequality is fostered by those otherwise beneficial changes as well. And I think a combination of political power and economic and and, uh, technological development accounts for the fact Mm -hmm. that high inequality is tends to be very resilient 
it and can only be forced down and temporarily uh, by very dramatic measures. Well, as far as the future is concerned, I'm always a bit um, disappointed when people say, well, there are certain policies that worked 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. Why don't we do the same thing today? And the answer is, well, because these policy measures were taken in a very different world, in a very different context, in the context of the Great Depression, World War II, uh, the intensification of the Cold War, all kinds of things that are no longer with us. And so it, it's not terribly helpful uh, to um, educate returning to them because they may simply not be politically feasible uh, in, the, in the kind of democratic systems that we have in the world today. And that's, I think, the main message of my book, at least, is not to just give up hope, uh, to throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do about uh, inequality, but we have to be aware of the fact it's really, really difficult to reduce inequality by peaceful means. And in order to do so, we may have to think harder. There has to be more dialogue between different academic disciplines, economics, political science, sociology, psychology, between academics and policymakers. There has to be a much more integrated, broader discourse to think really hard uh, to develop new recipes that actually have a chance of working in the 21st century. We're talking with Walter Scheidel about his book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. We're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And we had a caller who said, we have three men on the air talking about inequality. How does gender and patriarchy fit into this equation? Are the other inequalities out there uh, a factor on economic inequality? Well, I think we have good news in the sense that it is mostly economic inequality that has proven enormously resilient. If you look at other kinds of inequalities, gender-based, race-based, uh, any number of things, yes, they're still out there. They are a big problem in our society in particular, but they have measurably declined and they continue uh, to decline uh, by many metrics. So in that sense, there is reason for optimism, for hope. And it doesn't really seem to be a very direct concern connection, uh, in a way, between economic and gender inequality. For instance, if you think of the statistic that the real wages uh, of male workers in the U.S. Uh, didn't rise uh, for decades after the 1970s, well, that means that all the increase in average household income since then was really uh, brought about by more women entering the labor force, which is a good thing. It's a sign of greater uh, gender inequality, but that in turn almost masked uh, the underlying increase in economic inequality that was going on at the same time. So these things don't run in parallel. Uh, they are, co are related in very, very complex ways. But I don't think that patriarchy as such can be identified as a main driving force behind economic inequality. Jeffrey Winners? Yeah, I, I actually agree. And I've, I've worked on this and I've written on this myself, which is that the kind of durable stratification we see throughout human, human history, especially um, uh, stratification of power and wealth and the ways in which those have a feedback um, mechanism to them, um, they don't require um, exclusion on the basis of gender, race, and other kinds of groups. Um, and in fact, you can actually maintain that stratification while also opening it to um, diversity. So in essence, as we 
take groups that are excluded on all those other grounds and include them, you don't get an end to inequality. What you get is rainbow stratification. That is a well-represented stratified society. Um, that's clearly a step in the right direction, but it's also not um, a complete solution. I wanted to ask a question um, about equality. I mean, about um, growth. Uh, growth is something that uh, you, you would think, if the economy is growing, that uh, maybe inequality would would stop uh, would stop being so bad. And we've had lots of politicians talk about this, and we've got a clip here from President Obama talking about this. We have to continue to relentlessly push a growth agenda. It may be true that in today's economy, growth alone does not guarantee higher wages and incomes. We've seen that. But what's also true is we can't tackle inequality if the economic pie is shrinking or stagnant. The fact is, if you're a progressive and you want to help the middle class and the working poor, you've still got to be concerned about competitiveness and productivity and business confidence that spurs private sector investment. And that's why from day one, we've worked to get the economy growing and help our businesses hire. Walter Scheidel, what do you think when you hear politicians say that uh, we, you know, growth alone doesn't do it? We know it, but growth does it. <laughs> he seems to be saying. Well, it's certainly true. If you think of the fifties and sixties, there was very strong economic growth, several percent a year, and very low inequality uh, historically. So it is technically possible to combine those two things, but that was only made feasible by the preceding events, by the New Deal, and by the measures taken in World War II, which have since gradually uh, faded. It, uh, uh, away, uh, in a sense. So yes, it is possible, but it's very difficult to just um, ordain this by fiat to say this is what we have to do because it would be very difficult uh, to get back to that particular combination uh, without the right uh, context. And that context wasn't a very nice one. It was an extremely violent uh, and dramatic one. So yes, it is possible to have growth and low inequality at the same time, but it is historically quite unusual. If you look at other countries, if you look at what goes on in China, China has had extremely high economic growth rates now for many, many years, at the same, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, at the same time, income inequality has doubled uh, in the uh, People's Republic of China because of people moving to the cities, some people earning much more than others. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think if you ask most Chinese, they would probably pick a higher economic growth, higher average income over the kind of low inequality you had in the Mao period. So there is always so at most times, there is a trade-off built into uh, these processes. Jeffrey Winters? Could I throw in something on, uh, on the destruction of our environment? Um, because what's uh, – and, and I'd like to hear you know, Walter's reaction to this. Um, if we look at the, some of the major collapses in uh, the ancient world, whether we're talking about the collapse of Mesopotamia or the collapse of Angkor um, in today's Cambodia, one of the key factors is that at a local level, these empires destroyed their environments. Um, and it was a key element in their collapse in the collapse of those states. They, they stripped all of their surrounding uh, woodland areas of wood and fuel and so on, um, polluted themselves. So the collapses of great empires and the leveling effect that it had was always localized. Today, what we're doing, the difference is that we are actually polluting and destroying ourselves on a global level rather than on a local level. And I'm wondering... Um, talk about a great leveler. Um, 
you know, what does the future portend in terms of environmental uh, destruction? I think that's a really important point. And in fact, when I talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, war, revolution, state collapse, and plague, people often ask me, what about climate change? Doesn't that have the potential of becoming the fifth great leveler, uh, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse? And my answer is... Uh, that is quite possible uh, if we wait long enough and if things go really badly uh, later in the century and the next. But if climate change becomes a major driver, it will act through one or more of the four established mechanisms. Climate change may trigger war, like the civil war in Syria is a good example. It may trigger revolution. It may cause state collapse. It might even cause new epidemics uh, to emerge because of ecological uh, change. So I believe that there is, in fact, a potential out there in the not-too-distant future that severe environmental degradation could bring about a return of one or more of these violent leveling forces, arguably on a global or at least a subcontinental scale. Uh, you know, it's what about something like robotics? Is robotics something that could be a fifth leveler? or I don't know what kind of effect you think robotics would have. Uh, it would seem to be making more inequality, uh, but does it have a disruptive thing that um, might end up having a big effect? Well, as I understand it, the, the long-term prediction is robots are going to make everything wonderful because they are creating a very affluent society and everybody has uh, whatever they will need. But on a more human scale over the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, artificial intelligence, automation, robots are going to be a force in, in favor, uh, driving uh, inequality rather than reducing it because automation tends to hollow out labor markets. It destroys more and more high-skilled jobs uh, of, of middle-income uh, groups in developed economies like um, our own, and that is bound to have a negative effect. That's bound to shore up inequality rather than reduce it. So maybe by 2100, uh, robots will have taken over and everybody will be equally rich. But even at that point, someone is going to own the robots. Unless the institutions, the property rights that have developed over a very long period of time somehow disappear, there is no guarantee that even full automation uh, is going to solve the problem of economic inequality. How much? How often do we end up um, kind of mixing up poverty, uh, uh, poverty elimination with reducing income inequality? Because uh, I was encouraged by the Bolsa Familia program in, in Brazil, and it seemed to be reducing poverty in the country. And you would think it would end up having some effect on inequality, but it sounds like um, not really. Uh, that's certainly true. And I think it is important to conceptually to distinguish between poverty and inequality. It is arguably more important to make sure that people have the most important basics of life rather than to strive to make society as equal as possible. And in that regard, major progress has been made, not just in the US, but globally, worldwide, especially in developing countries. So that's, in fact, another success story. Um, otherwise, Brazil is a very good example. In Brazil, inequality was reduced by peaceful means in the first decade uh, of the century by a variety of measures. Uh, the redistributive program uh, you just mentioned, higher taxes, better education, uh, a commodities boom driven by Chinese demand, any number of things came together in just the right way, supported by a leftward shift uh, in politics in Brazil and many other countries to make this happen. Poverty was reduced and so on. 
But what we have been seeing in the last few years is a bit of a meltdown. There's a massive political pushback uh, from the elites that Jeffrey already uh, talked about, trying to dismantle or uh, constrain these programs. And it's by no means uh, certain that this Latin American way of gradual, peaceful equalization can actually be sustained or whether it will be brought down by a combination of elite resistance and adverse economic conditions. We're talking with Walter Scheidel about his book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern is also with us, and we'll be back with more after the break. You can give us a call at 312-923-9239 and join in the conversation. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking with Walter Scheidel about his book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Jeffrey Winters, professor of political science at Northwestern University, is also here. Jeffrey? Yeah, I just, um, in my own work, uh, talking about wealth concentration and, and, and tremendous inequality, a question I often get um, is, well, do people really care about inequality. Um, is that the number one thing that matters to them? Um, do they have a high tolerance for inequality? Um, or do people really care about having an improved living standard? And, so, and one of the things we can certainly say is if, if inequality is a constant over human history, um, the standards of living today are dramatically higher. Um, and, and so – and let's not forget that while – your book, Walter, and maybe my own work focuses on inequality as a problem. There are plenty of people out there who are perfectly happy with inequality, pursue it, um, think it's part of what freedom is about, um, and that uh, without inequality, uh, we wouldn't uh, have many of the amenities and quality of life uh, that we enjoy today. Um, thoughts on that? That's certainly true. I can give an academic's response, which is yes and no at the same time. On the one hand, of course, you don't Sounds want like to live a lawyer's in a society. Response, right? That's right. Well, that's true. Yes. Well, you're often the same people. Um, you don't want to live in a society where there is no or hardly any inequality because that would be unfair. It would certainly suppress enterprise and so on. At the same time, there is a huge, uh, a, a great deal of bandwidth. If you compare conditions in Sweden, uh, where income inequality is half of what it is in the U.S. and conditions here, it shows it is possible to combine those two things, economic growth, poverty alleviation, and uh, curbs on inequality in ways that still make everybody better off than before. It doesn't have to be quite as extreme in the U.S. And I think it's not by coincidence that inequality, economic inequality, I should say, became a big topic in America about 10 years ago with the financial crisis, because that was a moment where people's living standards
standards uh, measurably declined or development stalled for a number of years. And people looked around them and they said, well, what if inequality is to blame for this? There are all these super rich people out there. They keep getting richer and richer. Maybe this is one of our society's big ills. Maybe this is what we should hold responsible uh, for the slowdown that we have observed. So yes, I believe there is a great deal of tolerance psychologically for inequality. But whenever something bad happens, like uh, the Great Recession, uh, people become more alert to this issue. And I think that's what we are currently going through. Uh, you know, do you think that um, this the situation with inequality is um, is uh, something where we need um, I don't know what what kind of tools? There's um, universal basic income. Do you think much of that? I think in order to make a real difference, the basic income would have to be so high that it wouldn't be politically feasible. And if it's more modest, then it really resembles existing programs anyway. It doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Other people have uh, suggested, I think Stephen Hawking uh, did so, uh, more redistribution in terms of capital. And that's probably a root cause of economic inequality. If capital assets were more evenly distributed across the population, that would certainly have a dampening effect on inequality. But again, Again, the question becomes, how do you go about doing this in practical terms? It would be desirable in principle, but very difficult uh, to implement in practice. Why doesn't something like education work? Well, first of all, education does work. If we didn't have the education system we have, inequality would surely be even higher than it is because better educated people who would all come from rich families uh, would be compensated even better uh, relative to everybody else. Um, so in education makes a difference, but apparently not, again, enough uh, of a difference, especially uh, in the U.S., where educational outcomes are very closely tied up with socioeconomic status. If you look at some European countries where the public education system is, is in better shape, uh, so to speak, that's certainly one of the factors that he helps keep inequality down in continental Europe in particular. So again, there is certainly room for improvement, for reform. It's just unlikely to yield any really dramatic results. So it depends on what we are looking for. If we look for incremental change, there are many things that could uh, reasonably be done, starting with campaign finance reform. Uh, adjusting the tax code, not the way it was just done, uh, but differently, uh, uh, look, taking a harder look at the provision of education in a number of things. And that's going to, that's likely uh, to improve the situation. It's just not going to make an enormous difference. What, what do you make of something like the recent tax cut? Because here we are, everybody's been talking about inequality for 10 years, and then we make tax cuts that are going to exacerbate inequality. I leave this to the political scientists. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I, my my response to that would be that um, we have inequality on our minds, but we are also in a period where um, there's been an accumulation of power and there's momentum um, in the direction of empowering uh, the wealthy, or shall we say, reducing the restraints on their use of of power. So. Just two quick examples. One is that um, there's been a massive investment over the last 50 years in shaping the discourse and the politics that would result in a very, very conservative Supreme Court. That Supreme Court sets some of the most fundamental rules of things like campaign finance. So we get a decision like Citizens United, which says that spending massive amounts of money 
in politics is a First Amendment free speech issue. Um, so on the one hand, we have one person, one vote, um, but which is radically equal. Um, but on the other hand, we take something as radically unequal as the wealth distribution in the society and open up the floodgate for pouring unequal resources into the political process itself. The result is um, a very distorted uh, agenda, very distorted um, state level and national level political outcomes. Um, and finally, we get um, a policy like the, the most recent tax policy. So this is, this is a reflection of the momentum. One of the questions is, are, if 10 years ago is part of a turning point of a national discussion on inequality toward um, looking more toward uh, what kinds of remedies can we put in place, we may not see the results of that shift for 10 or 15 years. Um, and we'll look back and we'll say the turning point was um, 10 years ago when, when a very different kind of politics and policies started to get put in place. Uh, what do you make of something like um, why we have billionaire candidates? Because um – you know, like in Ukraine, they thought, well, here, here we had a revolution and we're going to put a billionaire in charge because he's not corrupt. And the billionaires are – and Donald Trump seemed to make this argument all the time in his campaign that, I, I you know, I know where the what happens. I know how things are going and you're like me and this, this will – you know, this won't happen. Uh, why do, why do people do that? Uh, Jeffrey, you want to take that one again? You're the political scientist. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're in a very strange uh, moment where on the one hand, if a candidate isn't personally rich, um, the setup is that you've got to basically cater to tremendously wealthy donors um, who are going to supply you with the funds that are going to allow you to get through our incredibly expensive campaign process in the United States. Um, and then we get to this bizarre logic where the only way – for someone to be able to break out of the constraints of that kind of money circulation process is to be independently wealthy themselves, then they're not beholden to the wealthy. So that leaves us with a strange logic which partly Trump capitalized on, was, which is that because he's so rich, he won't cater to the rich. Um, and uh, – for some people, apparently, that was a persuasive argument. Um, but it seems like what a bizarre situation. Only by electing billionaires can we possibly get someone who's independent enough from billionaires and centimillionaires to be able to do something for the average person. It's, it's sort of nutty. And um, Walter, there's this connection between government and, uh, and wealth. I mean, it's all through your book, all through history. That's certainly um, the case. So right now, what we have, that's just a logical result of the campaign finance system that is uh, currently in place. Of course, in the past, uh, this could be done much more overtly, right? In the Roman Republic, one of the first large-scale systems in history where people actually had a voice, where they go to vote for officials every single year, it was perfectly normal that the richest people were also the political leaders and the military leaders and the top priests all at the same time. So inequality in all these domains was out in the open, it was enshrined, it was institutionalized, and it was considered to be perfectly normal. So in a sense, we are no longer all that far away uh, from those conditions that applied 2,000 years ago. Uh, did you see the film Black Panther, Walter? Not yet, I have to admit to my great shame. I got it. It's, it's interesting. At the end, of, we're talking about Black Panther tomorrow on the program. 
and there's a guy who wants to bring about change and redistribution of wealth through violence, and he is going to launch a war on the, and, and deliver um, kind of a dominated violence to the rest of the world. And then there's the guy who want who ends up wanting to do it with aid and stuff like that, and, and trying to help people and distribute their technology and um, and do like an NGO thing for the planet and lift everybody up. Uh, I guess you'd side with the violent guy, the the guy who's going to come in. <laughs> the, the, if if you wanted to really change the system, you would be the violent uh, overthrow all the governments and change the system. Well, I wouldn't advocate it, but if, if, if I had to bet on who is going to be more successful, I guess my money would be on the first guy in this particular case, unfortunately. Did you see Black Panther? Uh, unfortunately, I've uh, been abroad. Uh, I'm on sabbatical, so I, I was in places where I wasn't able to see it. Um, I'm, I'm eager to see it. But I, I have to say, uh, I'm in, in, the, in the work I do, I'm normally viewed as being bleak sobering, immobilizing, you know, oligarchs have been around forever. Um, and I have to say, reading Walter's book, uh, I, I, I sort of am more depressed than I've ever been. Uh, <laughs> and I depress people when I give yeah. talks. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I feel like one of the – here's an upshot at the end is there's something immobilizing about um, – work like this. And I don't say that as a criticism, but I, I, I think people like to cling to the idea that there's something we can do. Um, and you don't end the Black Panther movie with the bad guys win. <laughs> <laughs> I think it provides a reality check, right? The message is just work harder, think harder about it. It's not easy. It's really hard. That's what history teaches us. It doesn't mean it's impossible. We're in the 21st mm -hmm. century. We can be smarter than everybody before us. Are we going to be? Maybe not, but at least there is a chance. Walter Scheidel is the author of The Great Leveler, Violence, and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Thanks a lot for joining us, Walter. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks, Jeffrey Winters, professor of political science at Northwestern. He directs their uh, Equality, Development, and Globalization Studies program. He's author of Oligarchy, which deals with some of the same things. As I mentioned, we will be chatting about the Black Panther movie and taking some calls and questions about that tomorrow. Hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, and thanks to Gali Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Daniel Musisi for engineering the show and curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.